Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Apostle Paul wrote that to the church in Corinth around 2,000 years ago. But it is as relevant right here right now today as it was then and this is my aim this morning if you are a follower of Jesus I want to remind you of the gospel because it's the most important aspect of our faith we stand in the truth of the gospel we are being saved because of the gospel and in this turbulent ever-changing unstable world we live in we must hold fast to the gospel So that not only will we not have believed in vain, but we can with great confidence communicate this glorious good news to the rest of the world. Amen? So we're going to read the gospel account of the book of Mark, um, and at the same time we're going to look at the three elements that Paul has highlighted in 1 Corinthians 15 here. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Here's a little bit of context to set the scene. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own disciples and he's been abandoned by the rest. The Jewish authorities have arrested him, they've put on a sham trial and they found him guilty of claiming to be God, which would be a serious offense if it wasn't for the fact that it was true. But they know they need the approval of the Roman authorities to actually have him killed. So they hand Jesus over to the Romans claiming instead that he's opposed the authority of the emperor by setting himself up as the king of the Jews. And so the charge has moved from this religious one to a more heavily charged political one. And Jesus finds himself standing alone before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And despite finding no fault in Jesus, Pilate caves to the Jewish authorities and the crowd they'd stirred up And after having Jesus whipped, hands him over to be crucified. And our first point is Jesus died for our sins. And in a moment, we're going to read Mark 15, 16 to 39. But before I do, I want you to join me in prayer. Because I want us to put aside all our distractions. Get rid of all our expectations about these verses. Because we've all heard them many times, right? We're all familiar with the narrative and the story, probably. But let's listen with fresh ears and allow the testimony of Mark to speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit of God at work in our hearts. So I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we want to hear your word afresh this morning, as if we've never heard it before. We want to receive the full measure of the goodness of your gospel into our hearts this morning, Lord Jesus. So I pray, remove all distractions and obstacles. Save us from ourselves, Lord, and let us hear afresh the good news about your death and resurrection. We pray 
in the name of Jesus. You might find it helpful to close your eyes. I'm going to read. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They compelled him to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, (laughs) you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. John 3.16 to 17 says this. And we've sung about it this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. But what does all this even mean? How does Jesus suffering such abuse and then a, a horrific death dying on a cross, how does that even save 
anybody? How does that work? Well, to answer that, we're going to take a little trip to the Old Testament. The book of Genesis starts with this. In the beginning, God. The almighty, supreme, and only being in existence. The one who is God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's how Genesis, the first book in the Bible, starts. And God has always existed in perfect relationship with himself. But Genesis tells us that he is also the creator God who chose to bring other beings into existence. So when God had created the universe, this galaxy, this solar system, and this planet, he also created human beings in his likeness and in his image. And things were perfect. These first human beings, Adam and Eve, had a friendship with God. They enjoyed his presence among them and all the privileges and rights that went along with it. There was no evil in those guys. They were 100% good. They were innocent. But they were also intelligent, and they had the ability to choose. So when the moment of temptation came, and they were faced with a choice to obey God or to reject him, they chose to reject him. They chose their way instead of God's way, And at that moment, they sinned. They fell short of God's standard and missed his mark. And in doing so, evil became intertwined and infused into their beings. Their friendship with God was broken, and they lost all of those rights and all of those privileges. And that meant that every subsequent human being from Adam onwards that comes into the world also carries this inherent infused, intertwined evil in them. That means you and me. And that evil twists our free will so that even though we can choose, every single person who has ever lived when faced with the choice to obey God or to reject him has chosen to reject him. So our friendship with God is broken and we've lost all the rights and privileges that go along with it. But that's not even the worst of it. Because our willful rejection of God means that in place of those rights and privileges, we come under the just judgment of God. And the punishment for our sin or falling short is eternal death outside the presence of God in hell. That's the perilous, devastating, nightmarish reality of the human condition. That's not what I think, that's what the Bible says. But the creator God is also the God who makes a way where there is no way. So he made a way to restore his relationship to the human beings he'd created by passing over their sins so he could deal with them at a later date. You with me so far? He chose a group of people called the Israelites. And he said, you guys are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And together we're going to show the rest of the world what it looks like to be in relationship together. And we're going to show them how we do that. 
And the way God chose to do that is through sacrifice. In particular, a sacrifice called the atonement, which really means the at one with God. Think about that, at one with God. It's a way that the huge gap that's caused by our sin can be bridged and our friendship with God restored, and it works like this. In order for us to be let off the hook for our rejection of God, something else needs to take our place. We need to substitute something else to take the punishment instead of us. So in the Old Testament, God said, you can sacrifice two goats in the place of all the people. One of them will be killed and it'll die in your place, spilling its blood and giving its whole life in exchange for you. And then God said, I'm going to transfer all of the people's sin onto the other goat. And we'll send it out into the wilderness away from me and away from you so that your sins will be forgotten and it will be like they never existed. That's where we get the phrase, the scapegoat. Did you know that? It's something or someone that takes the blame and punishment for things that someone else has done. Can you see how this sacrifice deals with both aspects of our situation? On the one hand, our sin is taken away as if it never existed. And on the other hand, the debt or punishment that we rightly deserve is spent and used up on a substitute. Now, the problem with the sacrifice is twofold. Firstly, if you sin again, you start the whole process over again. And secondly, the blood of a goat isn't really an equal substitute, is it? I like to think I'm worth more than one goat, personally. Human being and a goat are not equal. What's needed is a substitute that properly represents us and a sacrifice that will account and atone for all sin in all people for all time, once and for all. That's why the Old Testament sacrifices were only ever temporary. God was pointing forward to the time when he provided a sacrifice that would deal with the situation forever. And here, in the Gospel of Mark, that sacrifice has been provided once and for all. As Jesus is abused and crucified and dies this horrific death hanging on a cross, he is our perfect substitute the one who represents us fully and wholly, the one whose blood right here is shed for each one of us, the one who dies in our place as punishment for all the evil, sinful things that we have ever done. The prophet Isaiah saw this day coming and he described it in this way. Talking about Jesus, he says, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. And he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. 
But he was pierced for our rebellion, cursed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid the sins of us all on him. Not only did Jesus die in our place, but all of our sin was transferred to him. And you might think, well, how can that be? If Jesus is human and every human from Adam onwards has been infused with evil, how could he take any more? The answer is that Jesus didn't come from Adam. He came from God. You see, Jesus wasn't and isn't just a man, but the God-man. He's God, the Son incarnate, which means in the flesh. Remember the nativity story? Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. You know that. The Holy Spirit had overshadowed Mary, his mother, and miraculously caused a baby to grow in her womb. So the line from Adam was broken, which means Jesus was free from the inherent infused and intertwined evil that infects and afflicts every human being. His free will was completely unaffected, allowing him to cry out to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, not my way, but yours, That's exactly the opposite to every other human. Consequently, Jesus is perfectly sinless and he's able to take the horrific weight of all of our sinfulness. But there was a tremendous personal cost to Jesus in this sacrifice. Not just because of the sheer physicality, the brutality of the cross, but because Jesus' friendship with God in this moment was broken across it. That's why he calls out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? God is removing Jesus from his presence, just like the scapegoat in the Old Testament, sending it away from him. And Jesus is devastated both by the weight of our sin and the absence of God's presence in the moment of his deepest suffering. We cannot comprehend the depth of love that must have motivated Jesus to hang there on a cross for all of my pitiful, evil, sinful thoughts and actions. Jesus' cry is sometimes called the cry of dereliction because he's been abandoned and forsaken by God. But it's also a cry that's mixed with hope and with victory because he's also quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you, and they were saved. 
They trusted in you and were never disgraced. In a prophetic way, the whole psalm follows this pattern of describing the painful reality of Jesus' condition and circumstances while still proclaiming confidence that God will save his chosen servant because of the faithful, compassionate nature and character of God. But Jesus wasn't looking for salvation from the cross because he knew it was God's good plan. He knew this was how God was going to restore his relationship to his creation. In fact, Hebrews 12.2 says, Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. Jesus knew there was something after, something to be joyful about. Rather than saving him from death on the cross, Jesus wholeheartedly trusted that God the Father would raise him up to new life after it. So, not only on the cross was our sin taken away and our punishment poured out and exhausted on Jesus, but in the moment that Jesus breathed his last, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom and God threw it away. <laughs> to show the world that the way back into relationship, the way back into friendship, the way back into loving engagement in the presence of God was wide open once more because of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ. Let's look at the burial of Jesus, verses 40 to 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and, and there was also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Paul thought it was incredibly important that the church in Corinth remember that Jesus died for their sins. But equally, he thought it was important that they remember that he was buried. In some ways, you think that goes without saying. The guy died. Sure, you bury him. What difference does it make? Why is the burial of Jesus important? Well, I want to tell you this. It's important because it's as final as it gets. I want you to think about this. Placing Jesus' body in a cave and rolling a huge stone in front of it is as final a statement as seeing a coffin lowered into the ground and soil put over the top or receiving an urn back after cremation. We are so used to hearing, there was an empty tomb and Jesus lives. We forget 
He died. Died. That's it. There's nothing more. For the rest of us, <laughs> when someone dies, that's it. It's final. There's closure. There's finality. There's an end. Jesus is dead. Here's the point. He hasn't passed out. He hasn't fainted. He's not in a coma. He hasn't managed to slow his heartbeat down so it's imperceptibly slow. The stone across the tomb means he is dead. You don't bury people who are asleep. His own executioner confirmed it. The guy that said, this is the son of God. His job was to go around and make sure all of his victims had died. And if they hadn't, he was to break their legs to speed up that process. And he got to Jesus. He said, I don't need to do that. This guy's gone. Just in case, shoved a spear in his side. Definitely dead. There's no question. The final verdict, time of death, the sixth hour, Friday, AD 33. There or thereabouts. And you might think I'm laboring the point, and I am, because I want you to understand. This is so out there. It's so crazy. It's so other. It's so unexpected and unbelievable. It's the context of Jesus' death that makes it so. If he'd appeared in any other way, we could have asked all sorts of questions about what it really meant. But he didn't. The reality is, in order for Jesus to be our substitute, to take our place and receive our punishment, he had to really die. He had to really receive all of that in himself. The beautiful thing in this terrible, terrible thing is that he loved us so much that he did that. Another key reason that the burial of Jesus is integral to the gospel is without it, and I've hinted to it already, you can't have the resurrection. Without Jesus' death, there cannot be new life. And as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. And in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are just lost. And if our hope in Christ is only in this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But he goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Which leads us to our final gospel section, the resurrection of Jesus. Mark 16, 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who'll roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. But he has risen. He's not here. See, the place where they laid him. 
But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I just want to say this. If you encounter an angelic being where he's not supposed to be, and he says, go and tell everybody about it, go and tell everyone about it. (laughs) But let's give these guys some credit. They did do that, otherwise we wouldn't have this gospel. And we know from the other accounts, they certainly did do that. But I, can, I love this note because you would also be pretty afraid and freaked out at that moment. I imagine them just sitting, have a cup of tea, have a cup of tea, put some extra sugar in it, calm yourself down. He is risen. This is the greatest news that these women have ever heard. This is the greatest news that anyone has ever heard. This is the greatest news there is. This is why the gospel itself is good news. I want you to think about it. If Jesus had stayed dead, there'd be nothing for us after our own deaths. Even if our sins were somehow forgiven, all we'd have is this life, which is not only here today and gone tomorrow, but is often tainted, if not filled, with all kinds of suffering, sorrow, misery, and ultimately death. That's why Paul says, if our hope in Christ is only for today, we of all people are to be pitied. Really, we gain nothing. But God did raise Jesus, not just to new life, but to eternal life, never to die again. John 3.16, for God so loved this world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus has not only taken the punishment we deserve for our sin, removed our sin so far away from us and God's presence that he's forgotten it, but he's been raised to eternal life. And that eternal life has been infused and intertwined into his being. And when we believe in him, we are caught up into his life. Which means his eternal life is now infused and intertwined into our beings. And that means we don't need to fear death because it's not the end. It's not even the beginning. It's a transition. It's a continuation of this new life we've already received from God in Jesus. Our bodies may die, but we know that like Jesus, our destiny is to be raised to eternal life. I love the language of scripture on this. It says, our bodies are like seeds and they need to be planted or buried in order that they come to life again. Like a sapling bursting through the soil and drinking in the light. Speaking of our death and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. If I could have the band up, I'm going to bring this into land. What a glorious, eternal hope we have in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the good news. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's precious. 
It's the story of the greatest twist in the history of the world as what looks like utter defeat in the death of Jesus is completely upended into the supreme and ultimate victory of God as the empty tomb and the angelic testimony alike declare the reality of the risen Lord Jesus. Death is beaten. Sin is done. Christ is risen. God has won. And nothing will ever be the same again. My charge this morning was to remind you of this gospel message. Your charge is to take this message out and share it with others. In one sense, it's easy. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised to life on the third day. Do you know it's not your eloquence that makes the gospel powerful? Do you know it's not you adding every single detail into the gospel to make it right? It's not you speaking theology into the unbeliever that saves them. Do you know what the power of the gospel is? God Almighty, who is able to save to the uttermost, who is able to save the most depraved, the most unworthy, You are a messenger delivering good news. My encouragement, my my request, my plea with you this morning is take this good news with you and deliver it to someone else this week. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried. And God raised him to life. Amen? If you're here this morning and you're stirred by this story because you want your sins forgiven and forgotten and you want to start a relationship with God then I want you to come and talk to me as we worship because I want to pray with you and I want to chat that through with you a little bit more can we stand together I want us to think about this for some of us if we don't know Jesus today could be the first day of our eternal life do you know that for those of us If you do know Jesus, today is yet another day in our eternal life with Jesus. What a joyful perspective that is. No matter what comes, no matter what's gone, our eternal life with Jesus remains. What a privilege. We're going to respond in worship to this gospel now. This good news that has transformed and changed us and saved us. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hand over to these guys who are far more capable of leading us in that than I am. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you so loved me and my brothers and sisters that you sent your one and only Son to die in our place for our sins. And that in doing so, you procured and earned for us eternal life in right relationship with you. I thank you that I have the privilege of saying I am a friend of God. I'm a son of the Most High. I'm a prince in your kingdom. I couldn't earn that. I don't deserve that. But because of your blood spilled, King Jesus, I can enjoy it. And I want to give you the glory for it right here, right now. Be praised. You are mighty and worthy of all praise. We love you, Jesus.